morning again. Thank you, Rick, and the rest of you. Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 this morning, no doubt. As you are turning there, Psalm 23 has evoked for many of you memories of someone's sickness or perhaps being read at a hospital bedside. Perhaps for some it has recalled the emotions of a funeral service or even transported you back to a precious family member's graveside. There is no doubt that through the ages this psalm has been such a precious text to those in perilous times, but it has been our task occasionally through Sunday mornings to preach through the psalms. And according to our records, I don't believe we have yet preached Psalm 23 in a Sunday morning. And so, no, I did not draw the short stick. I believe the Lord led us here this morning. Um, You know, this psalm is one of the most well-known psalms, isn't it? Probably the well-known, most well-known psalm. Many of you, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but probably have the entire psalm memorized. I can see heads shaking and smiling, mouth smiling, I should say, or portions of Psalm 23 memorized. Indeed, it's probably one of the most familiar texts of all of the Old Testament. And so it is in the danger of being overly familiar that we find ourselves oftentimes reading and thinking about the psalm. And that is the danger that I would like to try to erode a little bit this morning if we give it a little bit of time. It's like the same danger that I run into as a father or as a husband. I can be so familiar, right? You can be so familiar with your family that oftentimes you forget to see the details. You know, it's like looking, my wife has brown eyes, Right? None of the rest of you need to really know that, but I do. Right? And it's like looking at my wife's eyes and remembering that shade of brown that I haven't really observed for quite some time. Shame on me, I know. Or holding one of my daughters who has a birthmark and remembering again that it's on her right calf. These things that we spent so much time and maybe even observing the details in as we become overly familiar with our family members, we kind of forget. So in the gain of familiarity, we have lost detail. There is a reason why Psalm 23 is so familiar to us. It's our task today to dig into its truths this morning. I pray that you will uh, do your part as I do my part for the Spirit of God to minister to And help us to grow. And isn't that just our experience with Scripture, though? You know, to read God's Word, to read a passage a hundred times, and still the living, the quick, the powerful Word still pierces and divides, doesn't it? It still gets right to where we need it to get to. And so we're looking forward to the Lord doing that this morning. Let's take our Bibles and We're not going to even read the entire psalm, even though it's only six verses. We're just going to dig right in because you're so familiar with it. You know, the theme of the psalm is clearly stated in verse 1. You see that there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
Now, I want to be careful, but I'm going to state this precisely. It can hardly, that is the theme of this psalm, it can hardly be improved. And obviously, I don't mean to say that the inspired scripture can ever be improved. It can't be. You know that. But from a homiletical standpoint, that is from a, a preaching, a science of preaching standpoint, all right, that is in the development of a sermon, this, this theme, or we would call it a proposition, all right, it's the pastor's task to take and organize a passage for the congregation so it's manageable and memorable. In this theme, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, as we see, is the main point. It is essentially the proposition of the passage. It is a small psalm that really articulates an immense truth, doesn't it? But I said that this theme could hardly be improved. And the improvement really comes from our standpoint, really from the Western ear hearer's standpoint. Because it's in our understanding of exactly what it means here when David writes, the Lord is my, and here it is, something we've read a thousand times, and we've appreciated in many respects, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, for us, the word evokes a rather simple life, a pastoral life. The setting is often envisioned as that of deep blue sky contrasted with rolling green hills and flowering white sheep scattered among them. It's pleasant. It's picturesque. <laughs> and yes, the shepherd is a strong and heroic figure, a capable and faithful provider and protector. But then our Western sensibilities tend to creep in and we say, well, what's a shepherd compared to a great titan of a CEO? What's the influence that a shepherd has compared to a man like a president of the United States or a king? And so it is here where we must unpack the author's intent and the original hearer's understanding of just how powerful a shepherd really is and just how capable the shepherd of Psalm 23 indeed is. So the question I would like to explore for a few minutes as we dive into this psalm is what is the psalmist's understanding of a shepherd? And to answer that question, we will look at two perspectives. And the first perspective is the placement of this very psalm in the Psalter. I I, uh, I love and appreciate the providence of God and his working through the Holy Spirit. And I certainly believe that while the Psalms can indeed and ought to be understood in, in, in their individualistic song experience, they're also framed, just like all of Scripture is framed with the detail in the hand of God. And so we're going to look at the placement of the Psalm. And the second Perspective, and we'll look at it in a moment, is the proper use of the word shepherd in the ancient East. Uh, so the first is placement. How in the world does the psalmist understand the word shepherd? And the placement of this psalm helps us here. If, we, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 20 for a moment, a few pages back, we see in Psalm 20 through 24, really, that these are psalms of King David and that they speak largely about the Lord as absolute, ready? 
not shepherd, like in Psalm 23, but absolute sovereign or king. And so in Psalm 20, verse 7, we read here, some boast in chariots and some in horses. Some are boasting in the might of human kings. But we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. That's the contrast, the king of the universe. Verse 8, they have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood. Save, O Lord, may the king answer us in the day we call. It's a kingly emphasis there, the sovereign of the universe. Go to Psalm 21. Look at verse 1. O Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. That's the human king again. And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. And what's the, what's the result? Look at verse 13 of Psalm 21. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So what's the reality? It's, the obvious implication of Psalm 21 is that the king of Israel exists here. That was the framework in Psalm 21. Because of the kingship, again, of the God of heaven, the absolute universal sovereign right of the God of heaven. That becomes overly clear in Psalm 22. Indeed, the whole psalm, if you were to take time, if we were to take time to read that, would be the case. But uh, the, the reality is, all right, is that verse 20, uh, excuse me, Psalm 22 and Psalms 24 really articulate those realities. Psalm 22, verse 28 says, The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Now go with me to Psalm 24. <laughs> and here we have a great answer to who rules over all. Who is this king? Verse 8 of Psalm 22, excuse me, 24. Who is the king of glory? The, long, the Lord, excuse me, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle, and the rest of the psalm articulates that. And so with such an emphasis, we find ourselves really nestled here with Psalm 23 in the midst of this kingly emphasis, this absolute sovereign emphasis of the Lord, the Lord, the King of glory. And that's the placement that is intentional, I believe, and instructive. That there is a, ready for this, kingly aspect to the shepherd of Psalm 23 that oftentimes our Western ears too eagerly miss. It's not necessarily our fault. We don't think of shepherds that way. But my point, and what I'm trying to get across this morning, is that the author indeed did view himself this way, that is, David, and he viewed the Lord as king, shepherd of Israel. And so we have certainly this placement, but we also have uh, the proper use of shepherd throughout the Old Testament as a kingly shepherd. Of approximately 167, I'm going to get a little nerdy, okay? I like to do this. So I have tools that can do it really fast on my computer. Of approximately 160 times that the Old Testament uses the word shepherd, 46 of them, almost 30%, are in conjun conjunction with an understanding of shepherd ruler, shepherd king, shepherd leader. Go to the Second Samuel. Keep your Bibles. We're obviously staying in Psalm 23. Keep your finger there. But go to Second Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. 
Here we see David himself, the very author of this psalm, being anointed as king. And what do we have here? It's 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, David, you shall be what? You shall be what? Good, someone's reading. Shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince, ruler, king over Israel. There it is, coupled together. That's the ancient East thought of what a shepherd truly was, of what a king truly was. He was a shepherd king. Go to 1 Kings. Speaking of kings, right? We might as well go there. Read about the kings. Go to 1 Kings chapter 22. I know we're doing some lifting in our Bibles this morning. These are all the things you can't do at a funeral. Go through the rest of your Bible, you know, when you're trying to go through Psalm 23. And here we have Micaiah speaking about King Ahab. Bad king, right? Either a good king or a bad king. Either they did right in the eyes of the Lord or they did wrong, right, in the eyes of the Lord. And Ahab did bad. And, and Micaiah says, I saw all Israel... All right, so we're in, the, we're in the kingly government right context here, the royal context. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains. This is 1 Kings chapter 22. Did I give you the reference? Verse 17. Sorry if I didn't do that. 1 Kings 22, 17. All Israel scattered on the mountains as, what? Sheep that have no shepherd. You see, this figure was very much a part of the royal the royal uh, uh, verbiage, the royal lingo, if you will. Sheep that have no shepherd. And if Israel are sheep, what figure here is the shepherd? Well, of course, it's, it's a king that's heroic and that's needed. Basically, Micaiah says, you're not it, Ahab. And the Lord said, these have no master, these have no ruler. There it is. Let each return to his home in peace. You know, Jesus quotes this, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, when he saw the crowds and he looked out and he said they are harassed and helpless, they are what? They are like sheep, right? Without a shepherd. And certainly there, we understand Jesus is unpacking the spiritual reality of what they need, but, but his hearers would have heard it as they are kingless and need guidance. We don't just have this usage in the Old Testament, this usage of shepherd king, but we really have it in the secular realm, in the ancient Near East. And so it's said of secular kings, not just kings of Israel. The first example is in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. You don't have to turn there, but that's King Cyprus of Persia. And he is referred to there by God as a shepherd. And then we have Hammurabi. Heard of the Code of Hammurabi? little bit. It's, it's a uh, pretty, pretty uh, intact uh, law that was uh, codified by Hammurabi of, of, of his laws. So it gives us really an interesting window into the ancient Near East. It was discovered about a century ago. It's from the two millennium BC. And uh, he is referenced in his code as the shepherd of Babylon. And then we have Ashurbanipal. 
Nobody names their kids that anymore. But he was a king. Good old Ashurbanipal. Right? He was the king of Assyria. And he built, he was a scholarly guy, he built a library in his capital of Nineveh. You may have heard of that before. In fact, much of what we know about the culture of ancient Mesopotamia, this is his, the historical facts, the religion, it all comes from cuneiform literature collected by Ashurbanipal and deposited into his library, which was, again, discovered more recently and is now in the British Museum. It is the body of literature we see Ashurbanipal described as the shepherd of Assyria. And in much contrast to the shepherds we have to the shepherd we have here in Psalm 23, Ashurbanipal spent the majority of his time as the Assyrian emperor's shepherd, merely trying to hold his state, his realm together. Listen to how one historian records Ashurbanipal's really the limits of his resources and his power as the shepherd of Assyria. Very much in contrast to the shepherd that we find ourselves studying here in Psalm 23. This historian summarizes his reign this way. Though his chief interests were evidently cultural, right? We see that in his vast collection uh, of, of the library that still exists today. He says, he goes on to say, he was required, that is, Ashurbanipal was required to spend most of his time and almost all of his resources maintaining the submission of his conquered peoples, putting down a civil war that was inspired by his own brother and coping with constant border skirmishes. You see, unlike the shepherd of Psalm 23, this shepherd, Ashurbanipal, was limited in his resources and in his power and in his provision. So much so that this historian goes on to say, in less than 20 years after his death, a relatively weak coalition of enemies surrounded Nineveh and razed the city. See, Ashurbanipal is not this kind of shepherd. Hammurabi is not this kind of shepherd. Cyprus is not this kind of shepherd. Even David himself is not this kind of shepherd. David confesses he needs the shepherd of Psalm 23. And so we often think of a shepherd as a cozy, personal per persona. But that is not the original cultural understanding. In fact, the position was often abused, as we can see, through our just brief looking through secular history both within Israel, like Ahab, and without, like Hammurabi and Ashurbanipal. Men seeking power, prestige, and self-aggrandizement. This, however, couldn't be further in contrast to the king of Psalm 23, who is not limited by resource and ability, so much so that the people underneath his care will never be crushed, will never have want, and never be marginalized by self-seeking power and prestige, prestige, of a self-indulgent shepherd. Indeed, all that this shepherd does, verse 6 of Psalm 23 reminds us, right? Surely, goodness, all the shepherd does is good because he is good and provides stability 
to all under his care. You know, another observation regarding the contrast between the shepherds that we just talked about of state and the shepherd here in Psalm 23 is those who are shepherded by the state actor are done by number. Think about that. They're not done in contrast to being shepherded by name. One commentator states, the shepherd image thus applies naturally to the people, Israel as a whole, rather to individuals, to a whole flock, rather than to an individual sheep. You know, we can, by the nature and limitations of government, understand being known as a number, can't we? How many of you have social security numbers, right? How many of you have driver's license numbers? Have you ever tried to renew your driver's license just saying, hey, it's me, Steve? No, they want utility bills, mortgage things, social security, and you can't get that document because you don't have that document, you have to get that document because you don't have that document, and it's a whole day endeavor just to get your driver's license. Yeah, you've been there, right? Even still, if you apply for the loan, they want to know your date of birth. If you're at the hospital, what is it? I'm dying, I don't care, what's my name? My Steve, okay, fine, what's your date of birth? Finally, they're satisfied once they know my name and my date of birth, right? They want to verify because we're shepherded by number and not by name because our government only has a capacity. They have a human capacity. But one of the main structural components of Psalm 23 is this. Our shepherd, our king, is personal in nature. You are not a number. You are a very name to him. In the Old Testament, the name was worth everything. It was was who you were. You see that in verse 1? We see it first in the theme that our king shepherd is a personal king shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd of Israel. No? What? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We see that being unpacked in the rest of this psalm. We see it intensely being unpacked and increasingly getting more and more personal. Look at verses 2 and 3. We see a testimony of sorts about this psalmist, this, the psalmist shepherd. We have the shepherd spoken about in the third person. This is the psalmist's testimony of his shepherd. You see that? Look. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He guides for his namesake. It's all in third person there. It's all a testimony. It's like me telling you, this is my shepherd. He leads. He makes. He guides. He's enough. But then look at verses 4 and 5. We have a dramatic shift. And sometimes in our familiarity of this psalm, we miss that drama. After all, this is a song needing to be sung And now the psalmist turns from third-person testimony about his shepherd to what? To second 
person conversation speaking to his shepherd. This is me forgetting you and running right to the shepherd now. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, comfort me. You prepare a table. You anoint my head. Verse 4, there's a reason for it. Why does he go from the about testimony, the knowing about the good shepherd, to having to now realize it personally and have direct access to his king shepherd? Verse 4, right? We know this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, sometimes we are brought so low that we have to go right to the king shepherd. And the beauty is Psalm 23 tells us that's what we ought to do. And then it's restated in verse 6. This theme that the Lord is my shepherd. But it's also a summary of the exposition of that theme. It's an explanation. Again, he is not just any shepherd. What kind of shepherd is he? He's a good shepherd. He's a hasad. He's a loving, faithful, merciful shepherd. And so one of the apparent truths that just kind of bubbles to the surface like bubbles in still water, they have to arise and keep going, is that the kingly shepherd in Psalm 23 is like no other kingly shepherd ever in all of time. There is no one else like him. He's not like the kings of old that were only seeking good for themselves. No, this shepherd literally defines who he is by his goodness and his loving kindness. And we see because of what he is and how he rules and shepherds. We go back to the theme. I shall not want. I shall not want. So what other authority in our lives can ever provide like that shepherd? Let alone any other placeholder in our lives to provide like him. Now here's where the problem kind of is, an, is, is another uh, problem with our Western ears, right? We've kind of dissected that shepherd is not just this pastoral figure, but it was a kingly, authoritative figure in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East. But also we have to really wrestle with this, I shall not want. What does that mean? Because in our Western sensibilities, we often get... And, 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 and I'm bringing myself, we, emphasis on me, okay? We often get confused with wants and needs, don't we? I do. And here's really where we have to wrestle with the text and really let the text teach us because we've got to be careful to understand what exactly the Holy Spirit is teaching us in this psalm. We see similar verbiage elsewhere in this psalm. In verse 3, right, he restores my soul. 
Look at verse 5. My cup, what? Overflows. Boy, that sounds like all of my needs are met and probably a lot of my wants, right? Is that what the Spirit of God is teaching us? So what is at stake for those who sing this song? This is a psalm. This is a song that ought to be sung of our shepherd king. Are the singers of this song completely satisfied with everything that they want? Or do they have everything that they need? After all, verse 5 says, my cup overflows. Right? Well, without getting too ahead of ourselves this morning, I want to pause for a second just to point out that the verse 5, the figure, the metaphor there of cup overflowing belongs to a different metaphor than the shepherd metaphor that we've been investigating here in the beginning of the psalm. The psalm moves not only from a second person to a third person, excuse me, a third person to a second person, personal reality, but also moves metaphors, it transition metaphors from a shepherd metaphor to, I believe, a royal banquet metaphor, and we'll see that in a moment. And, and, and while the cup overflows statement really does fit very nicely within uh, the, the context of I shall not want, uh, it must be informed by the rest of the passage. And so it is evident by the very singing of this psalm, and this is what I would like to argue, and I think you can, you can appreciate this, it is evident from the very singing of this song, song that the psalmist does not have all of his wants met. Or why would he be singing it? What person wants to go through the valley of the shadow of death? The very fact that he's singing this song completely negates the reality that Christians will have everything they ever want and never have any, any, any itch for more. The good and necessary provision of our king, however, shepherd, is vividly illustrated in this song. And it really harkens back, and I think one way to, to understand what, what is being get at, being gotten, got, what's being said in this psalm. <laughs> Tongue's a wonderful thing on somebody else. Um, what is the point? What is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us about I shall not want? Because some of us are going through Job-like things. We may look at his life and say, is God really providing all that he needs? And some of us have the temptation, we all do at times, have the temptation, God, why didn't I get that over there? Why is this over here? And it is our task to wrestle with those things, but ultimately it is our task to sing this song and to sing it how the Spirit of God wants us to. So take your Bibles. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. A lot of commentators have pointed out that there's a lot of Exodus language in here, and indeed, that, that's really true. Uh, for those of you who read your Old Testament, uh, the Exodus is a pivotal event uh, and a very strong teaching one for both Israel and the church. Jesus leans on it quite a bit. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, we have the same word in verse 7 translated lack 
as is translated want in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Indeed, some translations say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have no lack. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, we see of the exodus, uh, of the wilderness wanderings, this statement, for the Lord your God has blessed you. So this is uh, after uh, Israel is out of Egypt and uh, they find some need to complain. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. This is verse 7. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These, what? Forty years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not, what? Lacked a thing. Now, I don't know about you, right? But going through the wilderness, being homeless for 40 years, there's a temptation there to say, Lord, I don't have everything I need. But the Lord's not blind to that. No, don't forget, as shepherd, he's also king in charge of all things, all-powerful and all-wise. He's not short on the mortgage market in terms of Israel. He can get them land. So what is the king shepherd of Israel doing? Flip a few pages over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at verse 2. What are you doing, God? How are you being the shepherd? How do I have no want? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way, it's very shepherd pastoral, is in all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. In other words, it wasn't an accident. These 40 years, just in case they're like, well, he did it for a year. These 40 years. Now what? Why? That he might, what? Humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be, what? And let you be hungry. Lord, I thought I would have no want. He didn't let them starve. He just let them what? He let them their stomachs grumble. So what? So he could teach them. What? I fed you with manna, which you did not know. It wasn't, it wasn't a human thing. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God himself. Then he goes on to say, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. In other words, you still had everything you needed, even though your stomachs weren't always what? And our American sensibilities get that all messed up. We're trying to compute that even now, aren't we? But my friends, it just so happens that the shepherd knows your good far greater than you do. 
Don't forget that when you are through the valley or you seem not to be in green pastures, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so that's a powerful illustration from Scripture of just how it is that we can still seem to have need and yet really have all that we need because we have a king shepherd. So the question we must ask ourselves is this, do we want our kings shepherding more than we want of everything else in our life? Think about that. Do we want our kings shepherding more than we want the shepherding of Steve Sindelar or the shepherding of fill in your name? Right? Because the shepherding of Steve Sindelar would say, hey, I'm going to hit it big on crypto. I'm going to pay off everything. I'm going to build a building at church and I'm going to do it all right. But how many stories have we heard about people winning it all with the lottery and ruining their life? But the shepherd king, he knows what you need. And he will provide all those things. So the psalmist is teaching us, it's one thing to know that God is provider. That's verses 1 through 3. That's the testimony. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He guides me. But it's also an altogether different thing to be satisfied and rest in that provision. And that's the personal reality, verses 4 and 5. You... You guide me. Your rod and staff. You prepare a table. That's the personal understanding. And that's the difference between knowledge and heart following. So we must set our eyes and ears and hearts and minds and emotions and affections all on the only sovereign of the universe and shepherd of our souls. We we must be willing to sing this song The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It is a song for those shepherded by the king. No one else can sing it. But those who are shepherded by the king ought and must sing it. They alone have this truth. I shall not want. I shall not want. I shall not want. I shall not want. And herein lies the second structural component of this psalm. The first we just explored. Our shepherd king is personal. He knows our name. Me, me, me. He, he, he. You, you, you. There's a personal relationship there. But the second structural component is this. The use of metaphor. We'll be quick here, I promise. My wife says, if I say that, I better do it. So now I've got to do it. That's why I try it. That's why I say it. So I'll do it. And then I fail, and you forgive, and we move on. Thank you, Rick. Second structural component is the change of metaphor. We just explored the first. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He feeds me beside still waters. What a beautiful and tender and, and certainly true metaphor. And we glean so much from it. But the second one is a little bit more general. Commentators, frankly, wrestle over this. Nobody tends to land on this with any degree of certainty. Uh, But I'm going to submit to you something that I think is certain. And here we have 
really a table. This is the second metaphor in verses uh, 5 and 6. We have a, in verse 5, really, uh, we have a table spread for a feast. We have a place setting for you and for me. And really, it's in verse 4, however, that I would like to suggest to you that there's a collision of sorts of these two metaphors, the first one being the shepherd and the second one being the banquet feast, the table. And the collision really is found in this word, your rod. Remember, we're in the shepherd metaphor. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so many will say, well, this rod is a shepherd's, a shepherd's uh, offensive weapon, kind of trying to prod and poke and get rid of anything that is in the valley of the shadow of death. Commentators will go all over the place here, and they'll say stuff like, well, you know, in the valleys of the wilderness, that's where the water collected, so that's where everything was green. And if sheep are down there, guess what else is down there? Wolves, or whatever predators are around because everybody likes green grass and water to drink. And so the shepherd needed a rod to protect and defensively keep the staff, to pull the, pull the, the shepherd's crook, pull the sheep in when wandering. And that may be true and that may all be good, but I think some of that becomes more imagination than it does, uh, in my opinion, perhaps exegesis. But what I would like to do is, is really lean on uh, the biblical use of this word rod. And it's really not as clear-cut as perhaps maybe the, uh, some translators and, and, and commentators uh, suggest, because this rod could be like the rod in Psalm 2 where Jesus is breaking the rebellious nations and shattering them. And there, I'm going to argue, that that rod isn't just a rod, but it's more this tool. Turn to Psalm 45, because here, the same word in Psalm 23 and in Psalm 2, that's translated rod, is translated differently through uh, the NASB in the NASB translation. Psalm 45 and verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter, a kingly stick, a royal image of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so that word rod is translated scepter there. It has a royal flavor to it, doesn't it? Takes the lowly rod and changes it, in my mind, into a glistening golden gemmed, beautiful staff. Only fit for a king to let him extend his scepter in favor of you. And so it's not outside the realm of possibility. And I would suggest, especially as we've kind of investigated the context of Psalm 23, both within the, the, the perimeter of its location in Psalms, and as well as the background of the word shepherd, that this rod language here is, is rather appropriately a powerful description of the king's scepter. Where even through the valley of the shadow of death, who is in charge? That's what that is. 
That's what that is. And so this, verse 4, is where the collision of shepherd and the collision of the metaphor of the king's banquet table come into play, I believe, at the rod. And then in verse 5, we have a full transition into this second metaphor. So are you following me? hope so. I hope that wasn't too confusing. Nonetheless, here it is. Here's the point, okay? While the metaphor is generic, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In fact, uh, some comment, several commentators tried to list like six, seven, eight potentials. It drove me crazy. It's annoying. Many commentators will say, well, this is a metaphor for provision. It's just merely that. Some will say it's a feast of thanksgiving. Others will go into more of a ritualistic, cultic kind of feast. Others will say, well, this is, this is looking unto a feast in the future, an eschatological feast. I would like to simply observe that I think the text plainly calls for this feast to be squarely in the context of a royal banquet. For all the reasons that I've demonstrated this morning, it is a generous picture of the able provision of all those who are shepherded by the king. You prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. You're in control, and you're providing. That is something only the king of the universe can do. And my friends, you and I, we're seated at that table. Don't go for the scraps. Don't do it. Don't be tempted by it. This world has so much to allure you and me. But don't do it. My friends, you're seated at the banquet of the king. You know, it seems to me that everything good gets packed in on a Sunday, doesn't it? Folks, we enjoy a lot of good things on Sundays. And I'm not here to say shame on any of us, because God has given us a lot to enjoy. But sports, entertainment, parties, Receptions. It's easy, isn't it? To let our Sundays get so crowded that it replaces our seat at the banquet of the king. You and I, we must guard against that. We must sing this song, and we must sing it often. This is not just a funeral text, folks. can tell the Lord's work in my own heart. And he ought to first. This psalm reminds us that it is too easy to go elsewhere and we need to remind ourselves that we sit at the table the king provides. So in conclusion, and as we get ready for baptisms here, I'd like to ask the screen to come down at this time, but you don't have to display the slide yet. I want to demonstrate just how powerful the fusion of these two metaphors the king 
giving us a banquet and a shepherd really are and just how personal they relate to us today. So take your Bibles one last time and turn to Micah. Micah chapter 5, please. We can't just end the sermon without going here. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We're caught up in the prophecy of our very Jesus. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler, to be king in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Speaking of Matthew chapter 1. Then the remi- remainder of his brethren, brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Look at verse 4. And he, remember how he was described earlier as the ruler king? Verse 4. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus is our king and our shepherd. Doesn't he promise the very same promise in Psalm 23 that he promises in his great commission to this church? Behold, I am what? With you always, even unto the end of the age. This song is for us to sing about him. Paul tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And my friends, this is such a song to sing. And you and I, we must do it often and eagerly, especially with our American sensibilities. A song we probably need to sing more and more and more so because this is a song sung by those who are shepherded by the king. In a moment, we're going to witness baptisms, public displays of souls that have entrusted themselves to be shepherded by this king. And a reminder for this church to be satisfied with the provision of that powerful shepherd king. But... I want to leave you with this practical way to sing this song. And so you can go ahead and display. Uh, This is a free song uh, that was actually sung in this room a few months ago by uh, a group from Maranatha Baptist University. It's simply entitled Psalm 23. And as I've been studying this, I can't not but help to sing this song because it emphasizes exactly the theme. And it helps me redirect myself. And so I want to give you at least one practical way to sing this song. Now, if you go ahead and snapshot this, and we're going to have it in the notes tomorrow, this is going to take you to a YouTube version that they've posted that's free. So you can, can, without any expense, listen to this song to see if you like it, okay? (laughs) But I would highly encourage you this, this week to add it to your repertoire. Put it on in your commute to work. Sit down before your quiet time. 
and just let its truth sink in. Because, my friends, the Psalter was meant to be sung. And you and I have a great song to sing. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that we can get distracted. I know you've often worked in my heart, and it's hard for me to to wrestle through my emotions, and I pray they're not too distracting. Because, Lord, I want you. I want you to shepherd my heart. I want you to shepherd these dear folks' hearts. Because you are our king. Lord, help us to set aside those things that are cheap and even false compared to the table you've set before us. And Lord, when we do find ourselves needing our souls restored, help us to run to you. Help us to be satisfied in your kingship. You're the great shepherd of our lives. Lord, shepherd us this week and guide us. Some of us will have a terrible valley to walk through. Oh Lord, in those times, help us to behave like David and sing this truth that though we don't understand, just like Job, though we don't understand, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen.